Hello and welcome to the Gladstone's Land podcast from the National Trust for Scotland. Episode 8, Costume and Dress in Early Modern Edinburgh. Hello, good morning, Hi. Uh, or good evening, whenever you're well, listening when, yeah. to this, and welcome to the Gladstone's Land podcast. Here we are again, uh, back in the Gladstone's Land cellar. We, we had a brief sojourn to the third floor, it was exciting, but yeah. we're back here now. They kicked us out, and uh, we're back again to record another episode of the podcast. This week, we are happy to welcome back uh, Holly Black, friend of the show, friend of the show, um, who uh, we we had on the second episode. Mm-hmm. We um, followed her around. We, we followed her around. And um, she is back on, as we forewarned, to talk about costume. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm very excited about that as well, because not only is it Holly's specialist subject, it is actually also Kate's specialist it subject. Is. So I'm afraid Holly and I are probably going to uh, get a bit overexcited and, um, yeah, maybe talk for too long. I'm sorry. We're going to be talking about, I suppose, historic dress, mm-hmm. right? Yes. The sorts of things that people would have worn uh, in the uh, 16th and 17th Be- centuries. Pro- I think, are we going more 17th and 18th since that's the property? Or? Oh, yes, that's right. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, yes, sixteen uh, and 1700s. Yes. Um, so we'll be talking about a range of the different sorts of clothes that uh, various people... What the wealthy were wearing, wore. but perhaps also what poorer people were wearing as well, because there is a huge um, difference in uh, class wear at this period. Because um, actually, if you think about period drama and a sort of television mm-hmm. um, set in, uh, sort of in the past... Um, Costume is actually something you notice really obviously. I think it it depends how well it's done, honestly. And I think there are some dramas that do it extraordinarily well. And then there's some that choose to actually riff on the concept of um, costume and play with it and bring that into it. And I think a great example of this was The Favourite, which the film that Uh came out recently, who sort of took the idea of costume of the period and played with it as they did with things like the dance moves as well. Um, And... Um, made a point by doing it and actually that was really fun Um, but then of course you do just get episodes and and dramas and things that do it very very badly Um, and and unfortunately I do notice those well and I think it's one of those that this underlines the point that costume is really important Mm -hmm. we don't notice it we don't notice what we're wearing in in that sense we don't we just put on our clothes we don't think um, I'm wearing this and this is very uh, typical of this particular time period that I'm living in. But when we watch something that's set in the 90s or the 80s and the costume is done well, you, more than anything else, that's what identifies it as being of that period. It feels right. And so uh, talking about 17th century dress is really important, I suppose, because that is one of the things that How set people in that. Visualise what people would have looked like and what it would have looked like to walk down the street. But it actually also helps you visualise how those items of clothing would have impacted on the way people were living. So, for instance, women are wearing long skirts. And obviously, long skirts on filthy streets brings a certain certain problems with it. So that actually affects the way they're interacting with their environment and um, the things they're wearing, the shortcuts they're finding to keep their clothes clean. Um, and even when you... It, it feeds into all sorts of exciting social history, how people were cleaning their clothes, how people were making their clothes. Uh, there's a huge industry associated with fabric and clothing and it's hugely expensive it's not like today where you can pop to primark and get something cheaply um there really is 
it's a huge part of people's expenditure. Um, so it is it, it does tie into a lot more than just how people look. Um, it really is is a much bigger part of the social history. So there you go. The uh, the wide and uh, wonderful world of of uh, early modern clothes, mm-hmm. um, which we're going to get onto with Holly and Indeed. obviously Kate. In, uh... <laughs> you won't be able to keep me quiet during this. No, no, I'm quite looking forward to this episode, actually. I shall moderate, <laughs> uh, but not contribute. Anyway, Fair. so let's, uh, without further ado, let's get on to Holly. Let's talk to Holly. So, hello Holly, it's good to have you back on the podcast. Why, thank you Thomas and Kate, it's good to be back. <laughs> uh, so, last time you were on, um, we had a little chat, you mentioned that uh, you had a qualification and an interest in costume history. So, today's podcast is all about fashion and costume, so we thought you were the ideal guest. Um could you tell us a little bit about what people were wearing in the 17th and 18th centuries and maybe how that changed? Yes. Um, so Edinburgh fashion seems to be very similar to other fashions. Uh, so, so in the Domestic Annals of Scotland, Volume mm. 1, it says in... 1598 it has different things that people were wearing so the merchants in cities would be wearing English or French cloth of pale colour or mingled black and blue so it tells us the fabric it doesn't tell us the styles Mm -hmm. Um, married gentlewomen however it does tell us the styles they were wearing close upper bodies after the German manner, with large whalebone sleeves after the French manner, short cloaks like the Germans, French hoods and large falling bands round their necks. And unmarried women did go bareheaded and wear short cloaks, with most close linen sleeves on their arms like the virgins of Germany, which I thought was quite so fun. quite a lot of influences coming in from France and Germany, yes. rather than as opposed to the English court, really, there. Yes. Um, so I think that has something to do with um, the old alliance, that's what it's called. Um, so lots of influence was coming from the continent for Scottish fashion. They didn't have a unique style of their own. They were just borrowing bits from everybody else. And I suppose particularly with Leaf being quite a large trading port and things coming in from those countries, they were those ideas were coming back to Scotland as well. Yes, they definitely were. So they seem to be mostly influenced by the continent. And even the monarchy at that time were influenced by the continent. So James VI was heavily influenced by French fashion. And um, when he went down to London, fashion moved with him. So the entire court moved down to London and only people in Edinburgh who had a connection to the court actually had a connection to fashion anymore. So it kind of, it probably stalled a little bit. People were just wearing what they normally wore. In the the Domestic Annals of Scotland, Volume 2, it gives a really nice description of when... um, Oh, no, it was volume one, in fact, when James VI came to Scotland for a visit. Mm-hmm. And it describes um, all of the, the pomp and circumstance that he came in with. Uh, so it describes 
the um, the clothes that they were making people wear for him. So he probably did spend an awful lot on clothes and they wanted to make a good impression on him because he was so used to the English court at this point that they wanted to follow their lead and actually introduce specific styles based on people's uh, it was actually based on people's incomes mm-hmm. so merchants were wearing specific things um, depending on how much money they had so it was less class oriented than the English court tends to be so there were some sumptuary laws in Scotland cannot for the life of me find out what they were I assume I, that, oh, sorry, sorry, sumptuary yeah. laws are so sumptuary laws are laws to ban people of certain classes from dressing above their station, I suppose. Right. And so in other courts, like in the French court, for instance, uh, members of a third estate had to wear black, didn't they? Is that right? And I you could only so, wear yeah. bright colours if you were a, a noble. The yeah. problem with these sumptuary laws is they are widely ignored throughout history. There have been many different sort of groups and countries mm-hmm. who tried to bring them in and they are always ignored by people they never work um so you always get people trying to edge up mm. a, a boundary where something they're not supposed to um, yes. but that's really interesting i didn't know scotland had uh, attempted something similar they had attempted it but the only the only thing i could find about the sumptuary laws were people breaking them <laughs> were people going against them um although i said say that i've got one here 1672 um, the Parliament passed a sumptuary law discharging the wearing of silver lace and silk stuffs upon a design to encourage the making of fine stuffs within the kingdom and to dep- to repress the excessive use of these commodities. So I suppose this is lace in being imported from the continent, from, from Holland or something like that. Yeah, and they Holland, want to, France. So they want to encourage domestic clothes production so they say you can no longer wear Dutch lace. Yeah, you find that a lot. Elizabeth I did that as well, um, or encouraged people to wear wool made in England. Mm. So your average 17th century uh, Edinburgh burgess would have worn, uh, is it... Mostly dark colours. We, we we wear quite a lot of black and uh, dark brown and things like that, or something more uh, extravagant. They would probably be wearing mostly. Well, again, they didn't really have the class system in Scotland the same way as other countries. So it was just based on your income. Um, so there are. I found lots of things talking about. Um, lairds in country estates dressed in undyed fabrics that were made by their wives and their servants Mm. because um, they were spending the money on different things or doing different things with the money rather than dressing themselves. So they didn't have this big focus on actually spending money on clothes. If you could afford to buy expensive fabrics you would um, to show you had that money but it doesn't seem to happen as much hmm. so, um, so Sir James so Crichton for instance would have possibly had a uh, an Aberdeenshire wardrobe that was quite plain and then for his time in Edinburgh he might have worn something more, more extravagant. Fashion. Very possibly hmm. yeah it, there's just yeah it's very difficult to actually find anybody specifically saying this was what people were wearing because there does seem to be a lot of different well opposing 
In terms of wider colours, there's quite an interesting divide. So you've got a lot of colours that you can make from locally grown Mm. dye stuffs. So things like blue is really easy. It's really cheap. You know, you can... Woad grows in Scotland. People... It's a very affordable colour. So actually you often find things like servants dressed in blue because it's cheap and easily accessible. Um, In terms of imported dye stuffs, things like indigo, cochineal, they're a lot more expensive. Um, So the... It, again, it's all to do with how much money you have. If mm. you've got clothes in those colours, it does mean you've got more money. But it is a bit of a misnomer that everyone was wearing black. You do see in Puritan portraits that, you know, they're always portrayed in black and we assume that they only wore black. And it's because actually their black clothes were their best clothes mm. because, and that's why mm. they were painted in them. And um, black is actually a really hard dye to get to stay fast. Um, so the moment you wash it, it fades. Um, so again, that's why your your, your nice clothes were black. Mm-hmm. Um, so it perhaps wasn't as widely worn as we maybe think now. Yeah, there is a lot of banning of black velvet in the records that I could find. I suppose, yeah, it's to attach to wealth again because it's such a hard it to is, yeah. in terms we've talked a little bit about fabrics and colors and things Mm. like that in terms of the the actual styles that sort of a fairly wealthy merchant someone like um thomas gladstone what would he have been wearing what actual sort of items of clothing what would he have looked like so he would have been um so we're talking we're talking 1630s here aren't we Mm -hmm. um he would be in a doublet and breeches so um knee-length breeches stockings or hose he would probably be wearing boots as well boots were quite fashionable at that point um they were often very long so you could cover your knee when you were riding mm-hmm. um so we see well imagine your typical cavalier gentleman with his big folded over boot tops mm-hmm. um so that style of boots um yeah breeches a doublet with a, quite a high waist so at just that point. For, for any listeners that don't know what a doublet is what's that it's um, well, it's a, a, a it's a, a kind of a jacket, jacket. Yeah. yeah, um, yeah, just a, a jacket, sleeves buttoned um, at the front, button up right front. up to the to the top. Yeah, quite high yes. necked, um, yeah. and often with a point at the waist. Certainly around this period, is that right, or is that? I, I think it would be flat at this okay. period. I think pointed is slightly earlier. Um, so yeah, it would be. It would. I think it would have quite a high waist and big tabs at the bottom so mm. like a, a skirt would he have well, a white ruff they're a little bit earlier ruffs they are slightly earlier but sir thomas hope in uh, the lord advocate of edinburgh does um mention a couple of things um so he was wearing boots in 1643 um but on the 22nd of march 1645 at eight o'clock at night he's incredibly specific as well um he had his back towards the southmost of two candles in his room while he was reading something gosh he sounds like a quite pedantic man um and suddenly my ruff took fire and broke forth which he 
which I pressed it to quench, but could not, whereupon I cast my gown from me and ran down the back passage crying for help, but got none till I came to the hall where the servants came forth, and specially the steward James, and glasped it in his hands and took my ruff from me and so freed me of my fire, for which I pray the Lord to make me thankful, for it was a great mercy. So he was in a ruff. That's really interesting because certainly I, I have a much greater knowledge of the English court. Yeah. And certainly in the English court by this point, ruffs have really died out and they've moved on to sort of falling bands and lace collars. Yes. Things like that. So really interesting that that survived in Scotland that long. I think it may just be the term that survived oh, the, in though. In fact, actually he's so, calling what we would call something like a collar. You're listening. We, you can't see, but we have, yeah, I found a portrait painted on the 20th of July, 1638. Um which I love his description. Um, This day, William Jameson Painter, at the earnest desire of my son, Mr. Alexander, was suffered to draw my picture. And this this is the picture that he drew with his big falling collar. So ruffs, as they were, standing up, the Mm -hmm. big, you know, the big butterfly ruff that Elizabeth had, they shrunk and then, yeah, fell down. But I think... Mm. Clearly, at this point, they were still referred so, to as rough. For our listeners, um, he's actually wearing not what we would think of as this collar that Holly has just described, but actually um, something that falls a lot lower and sits around the shoulders, much more like a wide um, sort of linen or um, collar sitting round his mm. over his doublet. I was going to say, I, I also thought that that was also called a rough. So, so I, I would call yeah, I would call that a collar or band or something okay. like that. Mm. So right. yeah, I think the I think the term is perhaps sort of continues on, um, but not the kind of roughs that we're thinking of. I think interesting. Um, so we've talked a little bit about what the aristocracy were wearing in the 17th century and, and what perhaps the merchants yeah. and people with a little bit more money. Um, what are people with um, a lot less money? What are the working classes wearing? Um, and again, also what are women wearing? Because we've sort of skipped over maybe what Bessie Cunningham well, would be wearing. As far as I can tell, women didn't really seem to exist in <laughs> terms of fashion. There's very little about them. Um, um, I found a an essay somebody had written, actually, and there were no portraits of any women in Scotland outside the nobility until the 18th century. Of course there are. So it's... um, Yeah, like I said, women didn't seem to exist. There is very little written about them at all. Um, The only thing I've got is that, um, again, the... the, um, the General Assembly of the Kirk um, encouraged That's, uh, that them. great arbiter of uh, female uh, liberation. Yes, um, encouraged the whole habit be of a grave colour as black, russet, sad grey, or sad brown, and their wives to be subject to the same. So dark colours so they were recommending. Dark colours. Um, in terms of yeah. shapes, I assume we can base, if we know that they are being influenced by sort of French and German styles, um, what yep. sort of shapes would they have been wearing? Oh, um, so a, a natural, a natural waist, mm-hmm. um, slightly higher than the last period. Because it, it goes up slightly in the 1630s, is it that correct? Does. And then it does, it goes up in the 1630s, down. drops back down, drops really far down at the mm-hmm. end of the 1600s. Um, but yeah, in about the 1630s, it would be a natural, 
natural lace, quite mm-hmm. a full skirt, lots of petticoats underneath to make and it stick out. Definitely long. Definitely long, yeah. Um, oh, yeah, very long. Well, not very long. It doesn't have a train. Um, <laughs> but yes, definitely. Don't want to be showing long. off your, your legs. You don't, no. Earlier, you mentioned hoods. Um, is that something that women would have been wearing at this time? Um, so the hood would just be a head covering. Uh, so the French hood, actually, if you've ever seen a portrait of Anne Boleyn, that's what she's wearing. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the French hood is almost like a tiara type thing with um, the with the fabric at the back covering the hair. And women generally didn't go out without a head covering, although unmarried women apparently did go out bareheaded. Um but yeah, women went out wearing head coverings and there were quite a lot of hat styles in the mid-1600s that were very similar to masculine hat styles. Mm-hmm. So if picture, picture your pilgrim hat. Women's hats were very similar. They were wearing those big high-crowned hats with big brims. They, their hats looked like men's. They would just be wearing them over caps underneath um, to cover And that would be a little hair. sort of close-fitting cap that would keep the hair neat with the hat over the top. Yes. So it's, yeah, That's I think that was there. One of the hazards of walking around in Edinburgh, as we've discussed a little bit before, was that the streets were very mucky. Yes. Um, and you, you mentioned earlier these very long skirts the ladies were wearing. One of the, uh, one of the items on the tour is that the... Um, Get visitors are pointed towards these metal shoes that ladies mm-hmm. wore over the top of their real shoes. Is that right? Yes. That there were various things that they used to uh, to stop the bottoms of their dresses from so, getting dirty. Yeah. These are a pair of patterns, and the ones they we are. have have a little metal raised sort of platform on them, but they come in all sorts of designs, don't they? Yes, lots of different designs. Uh, so yeah, the ones we've got are just uh, a basic foot-shaped block of wood with the metal ring on the bottom to lift you up out of the dirt. There's an um, incredible pair in the Edinburgh Museum that are slightly shorter but beautifully decorated and you're like why would you wade yes. through the filth in these beautifully decorated overshoes yeah but I some think. of them are very lovely yeah and would people would ladies have walked a long way in these oh, no. shoes oh, no oh, no. <laughs> no um they would probably just walk as far as the street um and get into their sedan their chair. sedan oh, chair yeah so we're talking about the sort of lady who was rich enough to be carried around town in a sedan chair although there are worker day styles as well there for um, less wealthy women um, changing tack a little bit we we do uh, in costume events at Gladstone's Land I have seen pictures of you two and several of the other uh, members of staff wearing period dress yes. um, could you give us a sense <laughs> I mean that's partly because we like dressing up well yes <laughs> doesn't everyone <laughs> Could you give us a sense of, of some of the things, some of the uh, the fancy dress uh, events that we do? Well, they're not yeah. fancy dress. Period costuming. Sorry. Well, sometimes it's fancy dress. We all got dressed up on Halloween in it was costume. Really fun. Yeah. Um, but we had some reenactors in um, not that long mm. ago as well to well to mark the 
the anniversary of proclaiming Charles II when they proclaimed Charles II as King of Scotland down at the Merkit Cross. So they came in with their reenactment costumes. Beautiful costumes, which were, were made great. to original in, in original ways, um, using yes. original materials. So yeah. they were definitely not fancy dress. Had a lovely conversation with one about his shoes as um. well. Um, but yeah, they came in. They came in in costume. We've got um, a selection of costumes upstairs as well um, that we're getting guides into. So we've got some very keen guides who are Enjoy keen to up. get into costume so we will and be guide in them. People yes. in costume over the summer as well. Well, I don't know about you, but I've learned a lot. Uh, Very much. This so. has been a, a brilliant. Uh, discussion on um, uh, 17th century clothes. I think think we should add that we've run out of time to talk about the 18th century today but we're Mm. hoping that will be in a later episode so we'll have Holly back again (laughs) um, to talk more about the 18th century um, and we'll we'll pop that into something a little bit later. But um, uh, until that time Holly thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Right, and we now move on to what would normally be the interview section Mm -hmm. of the podcast, but today uh, we haven't got uh, a third person in the interview (laughs) because... The uh, the the interviewee, the uh, the subject of of today's interview is in fact our very own Kate. Apparently so. Uh, now this discussion of costume is of note uh, because Kate is actually an expert on British school uniform. She is gloriously niche, but absolutely true. Um, and I, I and so your your PhD was on school uniforms it was was, so I looked at the way um, so it was a little bit wider than just school uniform I looked at the way things like educational and social change affected the appearance of school children so um, when schools were restructured uh, when women got the vote um, increasing emancipation all these sort of things affected the way that the education system worked um, and the way that as a result of that school children were dressed so it was a lot of social history, but it was also a lot of fashion history and things like that. So, and so this is this is relevant for a number of reasons. Obviously, as I said, this is an episode all about costume, and that's something that we we do quite a lot of here at Gladstone's mm-hmm. Land. So we can we we talk about it from that point of view. School uniform was also the subject of one of the lectures in the Gladstone's mm-hmm. Land lecture series, which Kate delivered. What? So we're going to talk <laughs> about that. And um, also of note, uh, this is when the Gladstone's Land podcast becomes a, uh, a, 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 a morning talk show. Kate's soon to have a book out. I am. So we... Terrible opportunity for a plug, but I but that's, that's not what I mean. <laughs> uh, it's a great opportunity for a plug. I am rather terribly taking it. I think that's what I mean. Would you say that you are in fact the world expert on British Oh goodness, that's a, that's a big... Um, I am... Certainly one of the leading experts on school uniform, mostly because very few other people have written about it. Well, that is how you become a world expert. <laughs> Find a little subject that you can, uh, that no one else has written on, that you can expand upon. So, obviously, one of the things that British schools are famous for throughout the world is, is their school uniforms. Absolutely. Um, and actually, they're more widely worn in this country than anywhere else in the world. It's about 98% of schools wear a uniform. And so one of my my first question is when you were thinking of the subject to which you would devote your your 
PhD. Mm-hmm. Uh, why school uniform? Um, so I stumbled across it completely by accident. Uh, I was doing my master's in art history and I took a module um, which was looking, it was very broad, it looked at art in schools and the way schools were portrayed and it looked at architecture and railway posters and schools in films. It's very diverse, it was wonderful. Um, and we were allowed to write our essays on anything we wanted and being me, I went for some pretty you know obscure topics and I wrote one on school uniform and I I thought it was going to be a pretty easy essay to write I thought there was going to be loads of information out there and there turned out there was absolutely nothing and I ended up getting in contact with a number of um, girls schools um, and actually writing it based on the information out of their archives because I couldn't find anything else. Uh, And that made me realise that there was a whole area that really no one had investigated with any seriousness. Um, So that was where the idea for the PhD came from. And I sat on it for a couple of years and then went back and did it. Brilliant. Um, And what um, what interesting things can you tell us about school uniform? Well, uh, the first school uniform that we know of, the the first one seems to have emerged through Christ's Hospital um, in 1552. Um, so that? we can trace it. So Christ Hospital was in London at the time. Um, it's now moved further out. Um, they're now a, a well-to-do public school. Um, but uh, originally they were founded as a charity school and it was for orphans. That was the idea behind it. And um, because some of the children that were coming into the school weren't likely to have a lot of possessions, weren't likely to necessarily be able to dress themselves decently. They implemented a uniform so that it meant they were all warm and they were relatively well-dressed. And there was a lot of emphasis put on that uniform in a number of different ways. So they had to ensure that despite being given a suit of clothes, that they retained their humility and they understood it was coming from benefactors. Um, But they nonetheless were provided by with a uniform set of clothes so that's really where it starts um and it it then as more charity schools are founded um actually christ hospital begins to rise in status and a lot of other charity schools want to copy it and so they copy the uniform exactly and it spreads through this sort of network of charity schools as they develop Uh, and then the sort of the next big use of uniform comes in in the Victorian period um, where you start seeing the public schools um, bringing it in and obviously that's the complete opposite end of the social spectrum. When we think of school uniforms generally today they're quite um, well I was going to say quite uniform uh, quite formulaic <laughs> you have a, a, a coloured jacket a the tie blazer and tie model blazer and tie model so that comes in in the Edwardian period mm-hmm. and um, blazers actually originate with sort of Edwardian sporting wear uh, and um, it, it sort of develops from there. And one of the first to institute that sort of uniform is Stowe. Uh, so they introduce um, the sort of suit and tie model in the 1920s. And that helps to popularise this idea of, of the, the blazer and tie, essentially. But before that, and indeed still at a few places, mm-hmm. there were a, there was a lot greater range in the sorts of things that people wore at school. <sighs> yes and no. The thing with school uniforms... Uh, so the, the well before uniform, absolutely, there are these incredible accounts of the public schools and the wonderfully sort of flamboyant uh, outfits that public school boys are wearing in the 18th century. Um, but once they start to regulate clothing, um, actually 
only a couple of models emerge and the one that really existed before the blazer and tie model is the the sort of the Eaton suit the the tailcoat model um, which you still see at Eaton today mm-hmm. um, but there is a general sort of move to much more somber colors um they retain the fashionable silhouettes but obviously now that time has moved on they still retain the fashionable silhouettes of the 19th century fashionable silhouettes yeah so just the, the the clothing the, the the shapes that people are wearing so the cuts of the coat things like that Right. Yeah. In the same way that I, I, what well, doesn't happen so much now, but the fashionable silhouette of the fifties for women's clothes would have been very full skirts and a nipped in waist. It's I just see. The, right. Sort of the shape of the clothing that people are wearing. Um, we talked. You talked about it a bit at the beginning when you were describing the first school uniform. But what was generally the purpose? Uh, so it changes hugely. So in the initial stages with the charity schools, it is all about um, ensuring uniformity humility but also that people are are decently clothed um and sort of reinforcing the status of charity school children as being the responsibility of the state knowing their position knowing about servitude um obviously later with the public schools it has a completely different um thing it's trying to project and in that instance uh, it's all about class it's all about projecting an upper class image. It's about um, the correct definition of masculinity, which in the Victorian period is all about bravery and decency and fortitude and the empire. Um, And it's about projecting that image. And it's about separating themselves from sort of the lower echelons of the middle classes who are trying to invade the the public schools with the the newfound money from the Industrial Revolution. And when, remember just to get this right in my head, when when was universal education up till 18 or 16 introduced? So it, it, it's gradually introduced over quite a long period of time. So from the end of the 19th century, um, they start um, closing a lot of loopholes that, that allow people to work in the factories. They start upping the age. Um, it starts at, you know, 12 and then they move it to 14 and 16 into the 20th century. So it is a very gradual progress, uh, sort of a very gradual event that, that happens over, over a number of years as they continue to bring in new bits of legislation. And so actually one of the reasons that uniforms are so associated with the, the public schools in mm-hmm. people's minds is that actually it's not until the 20th century that there were other high schools. Not so you, you and, and other people started to wear uniforms. So, well, not all. So um, in terms of girls' schools, you don't really get academic girls' schools until the mid to late 19th century because education is considered, like, that sort of academic education is considered completely unsuitable mm-hmm. for women. And it's only some very strong-minded, pioneering women that that actually starts to happen. Um, and, of course, they want to show, both in terms of class but in terms of educational parity, that they are as good as the public schools. So they imitate them in every way. They copy the way they teach, they copy their curriculum, they copy the sports ethic that's developed, and they copy their uniforms, which is why so at the end of the 19th century into the 20th century, you get a lot of girls kicking around in shirts and ties at school. And there becomes a disconnect between what they wear in, in real life once they've left school and what they wear at school, and it becomes much more acceptable for them to appear quite masculine within yeah. their school uniforms. Um, and it is, it, it's sort of imitative. They're, they're copying the public schools um, to show that they are they are there with them, that they, they can compare with them. Fascinating. And then it passes down as schooling becomes more established for more people. Uniforms essentially filter down the, the class spectrum. In the last episode or a few episodes ago, we talked about George Heriot's, mm-hmm. which was um, as s- similar to um, 
the the school you mentioned earlier uh, was a originally a charitable foundation and then grew into a a private school and edinburgh has i think quite a large number of of these private schools um are there anything is there anything particular any innocent anecdotes about the uniforms of the edinburgh schools well uh, i don't know if you you've seen the fetis school uniform i have um, not well you're you're in for a treat when you do uh, their blazers are pink and brown which is uh, so they have very traditional striped blazers in the edwardian style they look a little bit like they're about to head out on the river um, but they are pink and brown in color and it's um an interesting combination but actually the um the probably the most interesting school in scotland in terms of um influence for uniform is st leonard's in st andrews and that is one of the early girls schools that was modeled on the lines of the boys public schools it's one of the first to introduce um uniform um particularly games uniforms so they introduce this sports sports yeah. yeah So they introduce this uh, sports uniform um, for the girls, uh, which is modelled on the bloomer suit, Amelia Bloomer's um, bloomer suit. Um, It's a combination of that and a a design that was invented by a gentleman called Diocletian Lewis, who published a book about exercise. Um, And it's essentially a long belted tunic with bloomers underneath. And it's quite controversial but they get away with it because they're in the middle of nowhere in a high-walled school what are bloomers uh, so they are essentially um cross between a skirt and trousers they're divided they're quite baggy um right are they a bit like i'm imagining ballerina pants uh, not ballerina um, like car- belly dance. Uh, belly yeah dance, like, um, um, a little bit like that um yes they're, they're very baggy they're they pull in tight at the bottom and um if you stand with your legs together they look a little bit like a skirt right. um, uh, and often, particularly lady cyclists in the Edwardian period, would wear them, but they put a skirt over the top the moment they got off their bike. Of course. Um, because modesty. They were very controversial. And, and the the last great hurdle in sort of women's lib when it comes to clothing was women wearing trousers, because it was seen as the last bastion of masculinity that women had not invaded. And you wrote this as your PhD, mm-hmm. which you are now in the process of having published as a book. I am, yes. Uh, my extremely exciting. It is could very you, exciting. Could you explain to us how that process works? Well, I pitched it to a number of publishers um, and Exeter University said, uh, Press said yes. So here we are. Uh, my final draft of it is due in two weeks time, um, which is going to be fine. Uh, no, we're nearly there. Uh, so it's uh, I'm sort of heading through the process, but actually all I did was send them a chapter, um, fill in their their relative, relevant forms, and uh, send it off to them um, as a sort of publishing pitch, essentially. Um, what, and it's my first book, so I'm still learning the process. What will, what will the title be? So I think we're going for Jim Slips, Gender and Gentry: A History of British School Uniform, or something to that effect. Uh, and what is a Jim Slip? Oh, <laughs> so um, a gym slip is a very popular style of girls uniform from the 20th century uh, it's essentially got a square yoke uh, it's got um, quite square shoulders and then instead of having a waistline it's got a very high seam just under the bust and it drops in um, unconstrained pleats from that point downwards they're exactly the sort if you've read any Enid Blyton if you've read any uh, Eleanor Brent Dyer any of those sort of school stories um, if they've got any of the original illustrations they'll be wearing gym slips in them well there you have it folks gym slips gender and gentry by Dr Kate Stevenson (laughs) available in all good bookstores hopefully maybe next year we'll see 2020 
Um, well, that that was, uh, as I always say, a really fascinating interview. But um, great to hear, uh, great to hear a little bit about your own personal interest. And, Thank uh, you. And, and, <laughs> I and, like talking about it. And as we said, um, just to sort of wrap this uh, discussion up and and bring it back round to Gladstone's land, mm-hmm. this was one of the things that we talked about in the in the lecture series. Was is that right? we've had a very very diverse set of lectures, but in the early stages, a couple of the staff members sort of talked about their pet subjects, um, and it, it was really nice. But we've had an awful lot of guests in since then on on, on this huge range of, of different subjects, all of which have been fascinating and so we use the lecture series not just to talk about uh, the uh, gladstone's land and some of the social history of edinburgh but more broadly as a platform to to talk, to about, talk about all sorts of history other... um and it, it's always with a popular bent so it, it should be it, you know it, it's very accessible to a general audience it's no specialist knowledge is needed beforehand very good well um jim slips gender and gentry uh that was great Kate, thank you very much. Thank you. There you have it, our episode on costume and dress, both in early modern Scotland and also in uh, in the history of school uniform. I hope you enjoyed both of those interviews. I certainly did, and I learnt a whole lot, I can tell you. This is a little note to say that what we heard today from Holly's interview is actually a severely abridged version of the of the full interview. Um, and there's a lot in there that I think is, is extremely interesting and, um, and deserves to be heard. So what I'm going to do is release uh, an, an unedited, uncut version of our discussion with Holly uh, in um, in the next few days as a, a bonus special. So um, if you're following along with the regular series of episodes, um, uh, you you d- don't don't worry, it won't um, it won't take the place of of one of our regular episodes. Um, if you are interested in what you heard today from Holly's uh, uh, great expertise on on early modern Scottish costume, then then do give it a listen. There's a lot of very good. Um, detail in there that we weren't able to include in this episode Um, and so I commend that to you. That's about all we've got time for I think other than uh, just to say that if you had any questions or if you'd like to get in touch with us then do please send us an email uh, gladstonesland at nts.org.uk. We would love to hear from you. All right that's it. Listening to the Gladstones Land podcast with me, Thomas Ware, and my co-host Kate Stevenson. Our guest this week was Holly Black. Our music is Apollinaris Inclicti by Animani Stabile, performed by the Tudor Consort and licensed under Creative Commons. You can find Gladstones Land on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, or online at www.nts.org.uk/gladstones-land. Thank you very much for listening, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>